You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about eating disorders. Joining me is Carrie Heckert, a clinical dietitian in the Eating Disorder Assessment and Treatment Program, and Dr. Eleanor Benner, a psychologist with the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Eating Disorder Assessment and Treatment Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Great. So pediatricians have a pretty good sense of how we define anorexia and bulimia, but can you teach us about how the criteria for these diagnoses may have changed over the years since we initially did our training? Sure. This is Carrie Heckert. I am the dietitian on the team or one of the dietitians on our team. So the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual lays out the criteria for diagnosing a variety of mental disorders. The DSM-5 was last updated in 2013 to better represent the presentation of patients with a variety of eating disorders. Some of the biggest changes were that the diagnostic criteria for both anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa were made more inclusive, and there was a new diagnosis called ARFID that was added. For anorexia, patients no longer have to be less than 85% of an ideal body weight. This was changed mostly because there's no universal way to determine ideal body weight as people are meant to live at all points on and off the growth curve in a wide variety of shapes and sizes. They just have to be at a significantly low body weight for their personal body. Patients also no longer have to verbalize a fear of gaining weight or becoming fat. You may often have patients who express no resistance to treatment until weight gain actually picks up, or you might have patients who express a desire to gain weight, but week after week, behaviors continue to interfere with that goal. So now, any behavior that interferes with treatment now qualifies towards diagnosis. And last, amenorrhea, or the loss of three consecutive periods, was removed from the diagnostic criteria. This allows males and premenarchal females to receive an accurate diagnosis. There are also females who continue to menstruate despite the severity of their disease. And then for bulimia nervosa, the frequency requirements of binging and purging episodes was dropped to once a week for three months. And then regardless of the diagnosis, if a child has lost weight or failed to gain weight, intervention that includes nutrition and weight gain is essential. I think it's great that the DSM became more inclusive with these definitions. And and as a pediatrician, it was very hard for me sometimes to determine what an ideal body weight was. Or like you said, some of the other elements weren't included, and then it made us hesitant to give this diagnosis. So I really like this new inclusive approach. Exactly. There's a lot of ways that as dietitians, we learn to calculate an ideal body weight, but it really just tries to shove everyone to the 50th percentile. So it's not actually representative of what the unique body styles and types are across the board. Mm -hmm. And then avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, we're going to get into a little bit later, but that's the new, honestly, very common diagnosis that we're seeing, especially in our younger kids. 
And I think that just from a psychological perspective, I think there's kind of this view of anorexia in particular as needing to be fearful of weight gain or to have body image concern. And so the new criteria really did away with that because that really did reduce the number of people that were appropriately diagnosed. And and we're just not seeing that in everyone, especially in our adolescents, right? And so the behavioral piece has really opened up the ability for people to accurately be diagnosed and be able to better get treatment. And you both mentioned this new diagnosis in the DSM called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. And this is less focused on body image and more about the relationship with food. Can you tell us more about what this newer diagnosis is? Sure. It's quite a mouthful. So I'm going to refer to it as (laughs) ARFID for short. And this is Ellie Benner speaking. So Really, ARFID is characterized by kind of extreme picky eating or food refusal. And as you mentioned, Katie, it really has nothing to do with body image, weight, or any other medical condition. However, it does result in weight loss or failure to grow. We often see nutritional deficiencies in these folks. Oftentimes, these folks need feeds or supplements, and it significantly impairs and interferes with psychosocial functioning. So these are our folks who either can't go to sleepovers or birthday parties, or they will go, but they won't eat anything. Families are unable to eat out because they can't find anything on the menu that their child will eat. Um, So really extreme impairments, both in terms of growth and then psychosocially. And there's kind of three primary presentations of ARFID that we see, and these aren't mutually exclusive. So it's very plausible that a person may present with one or multiple symptom profiles. The first is kind of appears to be selective eating. And these are folks who are hypersensitive to sensory properties of food, such as taste, texture, or smell, and tend to eat a limited variety of food and also may have anxiety about trying new foods. The second profile that we see is folks that are just disinterested in eating. And so they exhibit low hunger cues, early satiety, and you may also see sensitivity to GI distress. So for example, a patient who really isn't motivated to eat, and when they do eat, they feel full very quickly um, and then are sensitive to that fullness. And then the third clinical presentation are folks who are concerned that something bad is going to happen through eating, right? So specifically, there's a feared outcome related to eating, and that could be things like a fear of having an allergic reaction, a fear of vomiting, or a fear of choking. And oftentimes, we see that in our folks who have had a traumatic experience related to eating or have maybe witnessed that happen to somebody else. And while ARFID is a newer diagnosis and we're still collecting prevalence rates, we do tend to see this be a little bit more likely in males. And at least preliminary prevalence rates are about 3 to 5%. So you can have another medical diagnosis potentially that is associated with ARFID, it sounds like. So like food allergies or autism mm-hmm. or things that also have these potential triggers for ARFID. Is that right? Very much so. It's very, very common that we see those overlapping comorbidities. Just kind of personally, I've worked with a number of folks with ARFID who do have food allergies, Mm -hmm. and it makes sense that they would be fearful of having an allergic reaction. And the treatment really is kind of safely exposing them and helping them distinguish what foods do they want to avoid for allergic reasons versus that kind of tends to get globally applied to all food groups, right? And so helping them kind of parse that apart. Great. That's really interesting to learn about this new diagnosis that we might not have heard about before. One thing to keep in mind as a pediatrician, if you get somebody who shows up in your office and who's struggling with eating, don't waste your time trying to figure out if it's anorexia or ARFID. The diagnosis may take some time and it really doesn't matter. So again, if a kid is malnourished and if they're struggling with eating, the treatment is still the same. It's still getting them to eat, exposing them to new foods and getting their weight into a safe place. So 
while learning about the diagnosis is super important. You don't need to get too caught up in trying to figure out which route it is because often the early intervention is the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great point. So you mentioned earlier that children may be less likely to report a distorted body image or a fear of gaining weight or that it might not come until after therapy has started. So what are some of the other red flags that we should look out for in primary care? Right. So a lot of kids may show up in the doctor's office complaining of belly pain, early satiety, constipation, loss of appetite, and saying they really want to gain weight. They want to eat more, but their hunger cues might just be so dysregulated that they're literally not able to take one more bite. Their malnourished brain has tricked them into thinking that they're not hungry when they should be, and they're full before they should be, and they have tons and tons of energy when really they should be exhausted. We know that gastroparesis is common with weight loss and it resolves with an increased intake. You may also see kids who come in with this slippery slope of restrictive eating that wasn't necessarily intentional, but the number of safe foods that they feel comfortable eating starts to become fewer and fewer. Kids may become increasingly picky, brand specific, or they might report physical discomfort with eating foods that they previously enjoyed. Dieting is considered a significant risk factor for the development of an eating disorder, but a lot of kids also develop an eating disorder following a period of relative malnutrition. Maybe they got braces on and their mouth hurt to eat, or they got a GI bug that caused them to lose a few pounds. Or maybe they just have low energy availability, so the amount of energy they have coming in via intake compared to high levels of exercise So if they joined a second soccer team, if they started doing off-season training in addition to their current sport, they're burning all this extra energy and they don't have energy left over for normal growth and development after they're burned for exercise. Of course, if they're doing any excessive or secretive exercise or any intentional restricting or purging, that will also get in the way of their energy availability. You may also see kids who show up with amenorrhea, either primary or secondary, They may have low resting heart rates, so bradycardia. They may have hypotension, low blood pressure, or orthostasis. A lot of providers check labs, but most patients who purely restrict calories won't have any lab abnormalities. The biggest red flag that pediatricians who have the benefit of seeing patients from year to year is to notice any deviations from this patient's personal growth curve. And that is something that we really focus on a lot in primary care or looking at those growth charts. And we do share them with patients and families. So how can we discuss growth without putting an unhealthy emphasis on weight? Right. So providers use growth curves to track how a child is doing over time. They just follow the trend. Mm -hmm. There's no ideal number on a growth chart. So 50th percentile isn't any better or any worse than the other percentiles. It just means that that child's size is exactly average for their age. So as a pediatrician, it's best to focus on health at every size, which is more of a weight-inclusive approach that doesn't focus on the number on the scale, but rather on overall eating and movement behaviors. BMI is not considered an adequate indicator of someone's overall health, and obesity and fitness are not mutually exclusive. Kids are meant to exist all over, on and off the growth curve. The only goal is consistent growth along one's individual curve. And aiming for a narrow, healthy range of body size may induce individuals to engage in eating disorder behaviors. I think a lot of parents also don't realize that there's no such thing as weight maintenance in kids and teenagers. And goal weight is meant to be a moving target Mm -hmm. that will continue to change from year to year. And failure to gain annually is just as concerning as weight loss. A child's body doesn't magically convert into an adult's body overnight. It's a gradual process that requires consistent weight gain and linear growth. 
And on average, kids gain 46 to 64 pounds and 10 to 14 inches during those pubertal years. That's a staggering number. Can you repeat that for me so Mm -hmm. I can remember it? Yeah. So it's 46 (laughs) to 64 pounds Mm. and 10 to 14 inches during those peak pubertal years. Wow. And I think we're just so drilled in that weight gain is bad and maintaining weight is good that we sometimes lose sight or our families lose sight that weight gain is actually essential during Mm -hmm. these adolescent years. Right. Which makes sense if you take a look at the growth charts, right? They go up until age 20, right? Mm -hmm. So even the growth charts visibly are orienting us to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, as a physician, your first job is do no harm, right? So you want to know what to say without making it worse on someone. And in 2016, the Academy of Pediatrics, the position stand on obesity and eating disorders, recommended that pediatricians don't talk about weight or BMI with their patients. Kids trust their doctors. So if they hear from their pediatrician that their body is wrong, it can be scary, confusing, and dangerous. And the more a person believes they have to avoid weight gain or focus on weight loss, the more likely they are to engage in eating disorder behaviors to control their weight. So instead, as a pediatrician, if you can encourage behavior to improve health regardless of the weight outcome, if you can promote positive body image and discourage any negative body talk, both by the child and by their family. Mm-hmm. emphasizing the importance of family meals and getting fun, regular physical activity, not necessarily organized sports, but just getting out for a hike, being outside on your bike, doing something that moves your body and gives your body joy and recommending avoiding diets at all costs. Mm-hmm. We know they don't work and they have long-term negative cardiometabolic consequences because yo-yo dieting causes weight to cycle up and down and just messes things up throughout their lifetime. Those are all great tips for us as we look at the growth chart. So we've been talking a little bit about recognizing eating disorders, but once we have identified one, what are some of the management tips for patients who can be managed as an outpatient in primary care? This is such a great question. So certainly, you know, if you're concerned, even if you aren't for certain about the diagnosis, as Carrie said earlier, you know, when in doubt, it's always best to refer a patient with an eating disorder or with possible disordered eating to a trained specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly in the meantime, as long as that patient is medically stable, there are absolutely a few things that you can go ahead and feel safe recommending initially. It's really, really important and I think interesting to know that in our folks with eating disorders, neurologically, the wiring in their brain gets crossed, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that for the majority of us, we are motivated by eating. Eating feels good. Feeling hungry does not feel great, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Hanger is is really a real thing. (laughs) So the majority of us are motivated to eat. But in our folks with eating disorders, that becomes reversed to the point that eating feels aversive and restricting or purging feels good. Mm -hmm. And those malnourished brains are really just as a result, unable to make appropriate choices about the types of foods to eat, as well as the quantity of food. And so the first step and kind of best initial recommendation is to really empower parents to temporarily step in and take charge of their child's eating and to recommend that they are providing three meals and three snacks a day comprised of calorie dense foods. So kind of rewriting the script on what society may tell us is kind of quote unquote healthy when it comes to adolescent eating, right? And really focusing on getting as much energy dense nutrition into that adolescent or child as possible. 
you can also feel confident to recommend that eating needs to come first, right? That mm -hmm. it's totally appropriate and in fact necessary that adolescents be expected to complete all of the food and drinks that parents are providing and that everything else comes secondary, right? So if we think about the hierarchy of needs, eating really has to come first and everything else follows thereafter. And kind of related to that, it may be necessary for patients to take a break from activity, right? If we think about what's most important is getting as much energy in and reducing energy output, exercise is burning precious calories, right? And when someone is under fueling really can be dangerous. And it doesn't necessarily even have to only be for our elite athletes, right? Even kind of the more casual athletes or gym class, really considering taking a look at their activity level and possibly reducing that in the short term, just as necessary to facilitate weight gain and medical stability. I think that the thing that sometimes is hard for us to wrap our heads around is we're talking mostly here about teenagers, right? And so on one hand, they are becoming more autonomous and the parents are giving them a lot more freedoms. And then when we're talking about eating disorders, we're really telling the parents to do the opposite. We're saying, no, we need you to be in control and make the decisions here and provide all the meals and not just let the teenager, you know, make their own meal and go off in their room and eat by themselves, that this is a little bit different than what they had thought the teen years might look like. And so sometimes it, mm -hmm. it takes the pediatrician or specialists like you to get that message across. Yeah, it's such a good point, Katie. I think it's difficult for pediatricians. I think it's difficult for families and it's especially difficult for teens, right, mm -hmm. who are wanting that independence and, right. and can feel so frustrated and thwarted by all of this. And, and at the same time, you know, certainly as parents, part of the job is that when you notice your kid is really unable to care for themselves, really needing to step in and take charge in that scenario and really temporarily, right, in the service of certainly we work with families long term to help adolescents transition back to mating, making those sorts of decisions. But the difficulty is in the context of an eating disorder, malnutrition really just interferes and compromises their ability to make healthy decisions around eating. So sometimes these patients present to us and they're already pretty sick and they can make us as primary care pediatricians a little nervous. So what are some of the indications for an inpatient admission? So CHOP has a nutrition rehabilitation pathway. It's a medical stabilization unit. And it is meant to stabilize patients who are medically fragile and unsafe to progress outpatient. Criteria for hospital admission include being less than 75% of a median body weight. And median body weight just represents the weight with the BMI at the 50th percentile. So it's meant to be compared to average. Mm -hmm. Significant weight loss, bradycardia below 50, systolic blood pressure below 90, orthostasis by heart rate or blood pressure, hypothermia, arrhythmias syncope, abnormal electrolytes, or active suicidality. And if you're ever concerned as an outpatient provider that your patient needs to be admitted, all you do is call 1-800-TRY-CHOP and ask to speak to the adolescent physician on call. Great. And so tell us about what you do once a patient is admitted in your inpatient nutritional rehab program. So if they're admitted, our mantra is that food is medicine. Mm -hmm. There is a structured preset seven-day rotating menu that works its way up to three meals and two snacks. And it ranges from 1,200 calories up to 6,000 calories. Mm -hmm. Patients are advanced daily on their calories until they're achieving steady weight gain and vital sign improvement. And modifications are only made for allergies and religious preference. So at this point, we are removing the option of allowing the eating disorder to make any further choices about nutrition. The meals are 30 minutes and the snacks are 15 minutes. And if the patient is unable to complete their food during that time, 
no one's mad. It's no problem. The nurse takes away the food and they're given the caloric equivalent in a nutrition supplement, like a boost or an ensure. Mm-hmm. After 15 minutes, if the patients aren't able to drink the supplement, then the team may decide to drop a nasogastric tube to give the remainder of the nutrition by tube. Then the tube is pulled and the next meal is a fresh start. The patients, when it's not COVID, the patients eat together in a group room with the support of trained psych techs. And then following the eating occasion, the patients participate in therapy to distract from any discomforting eating disorder thoughts. Every patient's plan of care is discussed daily during multidisciplinary rounds. And the medical team is responsible for evaluating for any other medical complications that could be contributing to the malnutrition. The patients are maintained on bed rest to maximize nutritional repletion, and they work their way up to a seated shower and then maximum of three 10-minute excursions, first wheelchair rides, then walks. Our team is made up of psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers who provide emotional support and coping strategies, but there's no formal therapy that is done during an inpatient hospitalization. The team's social worker and psychologist run education sessions every Thursday to educate parents more in depth about eating disorders and family-based treatment. And then as admission progresses, parents will sit down with one of the registered dietitians and the behavioral health providers to learn how to plan meals and coach meals, which will prepare them for being able to go home. And then for a safe discharge, patients have to be medically stable and be able to eat adequate calories to produce steady weight gain at home because we know that a higher discharge weight is predictive of better outcomes. That's an amazing wealth of resources, which I was lucky enough to see firsthand as a resident at CHOP. But let's shift back to outpatient where I'm a little more comfortable. So there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of bad resources on the Internet, which we all know, but specifically related to eating disorders for kids. So do you have any trusted sources that we can refer kids and families to that provide helpful information? Yeah, it's such a great question. I really love this one. Um, So certainly, you know, families, if they have questions about treatment or about our program can absolutely refer to our website on the CHOP internet. In terms of other resources that we would recommend, feast-ed.org is a fantastic website. It stands for Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders. And similarly, there's a moderated parent forum through Feast that's called Around the Dinner Table and would definitely highly recommend either of those resources. There's also a text that's been put out by the creators of Family-Based Treatment, and it's called How to Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. That's written by the authors are Locke and LaGrange. Any and all of those would be great resources. And then certainly we could also direct them to Ava Musby, as well as Lauren Mulheim, both of which are very noteworthy researchers in the field, both of which have very good texts as well as very helpful websites. Great. Those are good for us to keep in mind. One of my last questions for you is we talked a lot about the critical role that families play in the treatment plan, but what if the parents are not available to participate or if they reinforce some of these maladaptive behaviors due to their own disordered eating? This is such a great question. I'm so happy that you're asking. And I'll speak both from the behavioral health perspective, but also just kind of generally our take on this as a comprehensive treatment program. 
you know, at CHOP, we really believe that parents are the best resources in their child's recovery and work incredibly hard to support families in nourishing their child back to health. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because there's a strong evidence base for family-based treatment for children and adolescents with eating disorders. It really is the gold standard. And so we often start there, Mm -hmm. right? And essentially what we're asking is we're empowering parents to take charge of their child's health and eating and really support them through a medical crisis until they're able to do this for themselves in a healthy and appropriate way. And so what we're doing in our clinic at CHOP is working with families to problem solve barriers to helping their child recover from an eating disorder, and really coaching parents on strategies for addressing eating disorder behaviors. Eating disorder treatment is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And parents of families of those with an eating disorder really are crucial to attaining full recovery. You know, certainly though, that being said, just like with any other condition, not all treatments work for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? There really is no one size fits all. And certainly while we believe all of these things, the reality is that FBT may not be the right approach for everybody. And certainly we try it first in our clinic because it has the most evidence. But, you know, if we're attempting family-based treatment and we're feeling like it's not the best fit or it's not really helpful, then we absolutely problem solve with families the best approach for their individual situation, which may include taking a more individual approach to treatment. Mm -hmm. But realistically speaking, the evidence really does tell us that parents are the best resources in their child's recovery. Well, I like that you're taking an individualized approach when needed and that you are troubleshooting because each patient is going to be a little bit different. Absolutely. So you have told us a lot today, and I know that you have these amazing resources available to our patients. So how can we refer to your program? Great question. So as Carrie mentioned, our program is comprised, we have the medical stability unit. We also have an intensive outpatient program as well as an outpatient only program. And all programs involve multidisciplinary collaboration, as Carrie described, um, and really involve patients meeting with a team comprised of a primary therapist, a physician, as well as a registered dietitian. So for internal referrals, providers can send an EPIC message to Mm -hmm. Kara Henry. She's our intake coordinator. And then for outside referrals, providers or caregivers should call 215-590-0681 to make a referral. Great. Thank you so much for teaching us more about eating disorders today. And if there are two team members who I wish I could have by my side in clinic, it would be a dietitian and a psychologist. So I really appreciate what you do for our (laughs) patients. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for having us. This was great. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.